right, so if you want to get out of debt, let's get in FPU. You say, I don't know what FPU is, Financial Peace University. We will have an information meeting tonight in this room at 6 o'clock. Now, if you want to sign up, if you say, hey, look, I know enough. I got enough information, Pastor. I'm ready to sign up. Then we have a table in the overflow right now. This, Well, not right now, but I mean after service. For you to sign up for FPU. We've already got 17 people who signed up, paid for their materials, and are ready to roll. We're expecting about twice that many. So uh, if you don't need any more information, you can sign up this morning. If you need a little bit more information, you got some questions, be here at 6 o'clock tonight. We will answer those questions for you because we have two geniuses on it, and their names are Matt Chestnut and Justin Moyer. They don't know much about much, but they know a lot about that. So make sure you come on out, all right? Um, we are in a series of messages called Church to the Max, so look inside your worship program and get those notes out and write down what uh, God inspires you to write down. And you know what? When I'm listening to a sermon, I kind of take two sets of notes. We had a wonderful opportunity to go to a conference. All my all-access people out there who went to all-access this week, let me hear from you. <laughs> They're exhausted. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was three days of some of the best teaching in the world, but it was uh, getting up early and getting to bed late uh, during that whole process, and, uh, and uh, it, it's kind of tough. Probably, probably most of the people who went to All Access are at the prison ministry or involved in some ministry here in the church somewhere, and uh, we appreciate all them going, but we heard Ed Young Jr. and uh, Pastor Matt from C3, and it was just a great, great three days. Um, but when I'm at a conference like that, I take two sets of notes. I take notes, you know, like the sheet they give you. And then I take this other set of notes because God always speaks things to me personally from the things I'm hearing from them. Does that make sense? You know, you, know, you get the sermon notes, but then God says something to you. Gives you that kind of rhema word, that, that special word that's just for you. And so we hope that'll happen uh, in the message this morning. Uh, let, me, let me hear from all my folks who got baptized last week. Can I hear from you? All right, cool, cool. So we had over 40 people get baptized last Sunday in the second service. And uh, so we have a certificate for you, and uh, you can pick it up at the information desk, a baptismal certificate. It'll also get you 10% off at Andy's Cheese Steaks. That is not true. That part is not true. But we need you to pick up... Y'all were like, cool. Um, so, uh, so make sure you pick up your baptismal certificate and uh, put it in a very special place, okay? Church to the max. For a couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to reach our maximum potential as a church. We opened up with this question. We opened the entire series up with this question. What are the qualities God is looking for in a church that would allow him to use that church to its maximum capacity. What do we need to do as a congregation called Whitley Church to get into a position where God can use us to our full potential? What changes do we need to make as individuals and as a corporate body, 
that would make us usable to God? What is it that would make God look down and go, they get it. They get what I want to do. They get what is priority and what I want them to do. And so since they get it, I can use them to do great things. We have discussed how that the world and the Christian community around us measures our success and our potential success by things that can be counted. If you ask somebody, what makes a church successful? They give you stuff like, well, the offerings have got to be this much and the attendance has got to be this much and you got to have this many uh, square feet of uh, ministry space and you got to have this many acres and and you got to have uh, all of this stuff, this many percentage of volunteers, uh, you know, compared to the overall attendance of your church. So the ratio has to be just right or your church is not going to be successful. They give you stuff you can count. But when you ask Jesus what makes a church powerful, when you ask Jesus what makes a church effective and what makes a church have impact in its community? Jesus doesn't talk about things you can count. Jesus talks about love. Jesus says if a church does not have love within the walls of that church, then it does not matter what else they have. I cannot use them. Let's look at what he said. In John 13, 34 and 35, the Bible says, and this is Jesus talking, a new command I give you, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. Two key words, new command. Not an old suggestion, <laughs> but a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, pretty high mark right there. So you must, now what must really means is must. <laughs> so you must love one another. It is not optional, boys and girls. It is not a thing that God looks down and goes, you know, really it would be better if y'all loved each other, if you could. That is not what Jesus is saying. You must love one another. By this, all men, women, boys, and girls who are not in church will know that you are mine. You are my followers, my learners, my students, my disciples. Again, that is if, Jesus says, you love one another. I love this question. How can a local church get God excited? I just love the thought of me or our church doing something that just excites God. You know, i got to think God gets excited. He's a daddy. And when, when your kids do what they're supposed to do, don't you get excited? I get excited when my kids actually obey. When they actually do what you, and I love it when they just do what you said out of the blue. Like you didn't have to just, you know, make them do what you said, but they just out of the blue did exactly what you said, the way you said. I get excited about that. And our Father in heaven gets excited when he looks down and he sees Whitley Church trying to reach its community. And he sees Whitley Church trying to reach the city 
that we are a part of and that we're in. And when, he try, and when he sees us trying to reach out beyond our city to our nation and to our world and have an impact in the world around us, and when he sees us doing that through a willingness and a courage and a desire and a determination to love one another, when he sees us understand that it doesn't matter how cool church is, that it doesn't matter how much technology we have, and it doesn't matter how, how comfortable and wow the experience at church is, that's not the number one thing. The number one thing is that we love each other. See, I've told you all that story so many times, and I just want to tell it again about the little boy that walked to church every Sunday morning, and he walked 10 blocks. And he walked by about 10 churches to get to this church. And he would walk by this policeman every morning. And one morning the policeman said, son, he said, for six months I have waved at you and you have waved at me. And I learned that when I see you go by on Sunday morning, you are on your way to this church. And I found out where you live. And he said, son, do you understand that, that um, there are 10 churches between your house and this one you go to? He said, why do you walk that far? He said, because they love a fella down there. They love a fella. In other words, he'd probably already been to those other ten. And he got shunned or he got treated coldly. But when he walked into an environment of love, he didn't mind walking. He didn't mind the, the extra miles. He didn't mind the extra steps. So why is love God's number one church quality? Why is love at the top of God's list. We talked about this a little bit last week. Let me just mention it again. Number one, God says, I'm in the life change business. God is in the life change business. And God says, life change happens best in an environment of love. See, God is going to send. If he, look, 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 get this. If he looks down and sees us loving each other, then he is going to send unbelievers to this church. Because he knows you'll treat them right. And he knows you will love them. And he knows when they walk in the door, you will, you will, you will embrace them. He, here's, what, here's what it really means. Because we kind of get into the, the first point we talked about. He, he knows that you will send the message that says to those unbelievers, listen, listen, you belong here. I'm telling you, listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. We've got to send that message when people walk in the doors of this church. You say, yeah, but you know, I, I know I've been in churches where somebody came in and they caused trouble. So you know what I do, pastors, I just kind of stay back from people when they first come. And I see if they're going to be like us and kind of flow with us. And I want to make sure they're not going to give trouble and cause division in our church. Hey, listen, you love them. God will take care of that stuff. That's none of your business. You love them and you pray protection over Whitley Church. I know the devil sends people. I know that. I know under some, some people's hair, these, these little horns under there. I know that. Guys, I've been pastoring since I was 19 years old. I've met those folks. Okay? But that's not our deal. That's God's deal. You love them. Because here's what's going to happen if you do that. You're going to decide somebody's got little horns under their hair and they don't. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to decide somebody's an angel and they got little horns under their hair. So you just leave all that to God and love how many people? All people. Amen, amen, amen. It's good preaching. Give me a tape of this. I want to listen to this. 
God's going to send non-believers. See, listen, listen. When God looks down and sees us loving each other, he goes, all right, I can trust them. I can trust that church. I can trust that church that they're going to treat the people I send there right. So I'm going to send non-believers. And I'm going to send new believers. How many of you know not everybody gets saved in church? Matter of fact, I think that's God's really God's main plan. Is that most people get saved because we took it to them. Not because we got them here. Now I thank God that we see that happen in our church. But really God's plan is for the church to go. Here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to bring them in, train them up, send them out. Everybody say that. Bring them in, train them up, send them out. Bring them in, train them up, send them out. Bring them in, train them up, send them out. Come on, come on. Bring them in, train them up. You're all high. That's our job. We are a disciple factory. A disciple fact. We make disciples. Bring them in, train them up, send them out. Somebody goes, uh, What's your church all about? Go, we bring them in, train them up, send them out. Then watch their faith. Because most people, when you ask them what their church does, they don't know. <laughs> How sad is that? Oh, we eat and stuff. Uh, okay. <laughs> Number two, and I love that part. Number two, here's why love is important. Because in an environment of love, trust is established. Something happens in here. So, So we love each other. We read John 13, 34, 35. We believe it and practice it. So we love each other. And when you really love each other, trust develops. Y'all with me? And when trust develops, then cooperation happens. You can't cooperate with people you don't trust, can you? So when you love, that makes trust, and trust makes cooperation. And when people start cooperating with each other, then we start strategizing and coordinating our resources. Now, how many of y'all know we have a ton of resources here at Whitley Church? I mean, if you'd come to a staff meeting on Tuesday morning, you'd think we didn't have anything because everybody's going, man, I need this, and I need this, and Jimmy Gilligan get me some money because I need this for my ministry, and I need this for my folks, and I need, but we got so much. We got so much. And there will always be a list of, of things we need. But, but sometimes you just got to stop saying, I wish I had and I need. And we just got to look around and go, look, look at all we got. Amen, amen. So we got to coordinate those resources. And when you coordinate those resources, then you're able to, through love and trust and cooperation and coordination, you are then able to to get the work of God done, which is make disciples. And how do we do that? We bring them in, train them up, send them out, and bring them in and train them up and send them out. So we, we, when we love each other, there is no limit to what we can accomplish as a church. Now, if we're not going to love each other, let me tell you, it, it, have, you ever, have you ever been trying as hard as you can try to make something happen, maybe even over a year or two-year period, and you just look back and you've made no progress? Or you feel like you've made no progress? That's how a church is. Here's what churches do. They go to these seminars and they go to these leadership things, they go to these big churches, and they see stuff they've got, and they go, man, if I can get that, 
And if I can get that, and if we can get that, then we'll have, listen, I'm telling you, if you don't have love, somebody can write you a check for a million dollars. I felt a glory to God right there when I said that. I felt it. I something just, woo. And uh, so, but somebody can write you a check for a million dollars, and you can go out and spend it and buy everything you saw in that big church, and you think that's going to make you a church like that? No. Let me tell you what attracts people. They may come to see your video, and they may come to hear your cool music, and they may come, but they ain't going to stay unless somebody loves on them. If they come into an environment of division, amen, amen, they're not going to stay. Look, you say, but what if nobody tells them? I mean, what if you can keep it on the down low? You can't keep it on the down low. Division and spite and bitterness, it comes to the top. You can't keep it hidden. You know, you're up there greeting a visitor, going, hi, how are you? Because you're just kicking somebody behind you. (laughs) See, they see you kicking. They're like, what is he kicking that guy? Okay. See, God doesn't look on the outward. God looks on the heart. So it's the heart of our church. It's not the outward stuff. You see, it's the heart of our church that determines our potential and how much God can use us to accomplish his will and purposes. The freedom that God has to show up here at Whitley Church, the freedom he has to show up is based on how much we love each other. I'm telling you, please get this. I'm so proud of our music. I I stand on that front row and I hear the quality of our music and I I hear the choir and I hear the band. And and guys, I got to tell you, those of you who have been with me from the beginning, y'all know in June I've been here 19 years. I have seen it all in 19 years. I've stood on the front row and cried, but it wasn't because God was blessing me. Amen. And so, and so we've come a long way, but I'm telling you something. If we don't love each other, it doesn't matter how all. We could have Lincoln Brewster, and some of y'all going, who? We could have him every Sunday. It wouldn't matter. You could get rid of me and get Andy Stanley. It wouldn't matter. If we didn't love each other. Please get that. So we're asking what does this love look like. And we found out last week that it looks like acceptance. The first thing was acceptance. Romans 15, 7. So accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Then God will be glorified. You remember we talked about that last week? And, And what does acceptance say? What does it say? It says, you belong here. You belong here. When a, when a guest comes in the main entrance and you walk right by them, you just said to them, I'm not sure you belong here or you don't belong here. When you come to church and it's all about you and your little clique and your little group and your family and your closest friends and you don't have your head on swivel like my football coach used to say and you're not looking around seeing if there's a new person here so you can go up to them and make them feel welcome then you are sending them the message that we're not real sure you belong here. I'm asking you church, listen, we got to quit talking about this and do it. Do it. Matter of fact, when we do greet your neighbor, we learned this the other night in our class over here. Where are the Hadleys? Right there, guys. Raise your hand right there. (laughs) Uh, They they have come. You you guys were in South Dakota. Is that right? 
They were in a church there, about 1,200 people. Well, we're right there. That's where we are. And they said that their pastor would say something. So I'm going to steal this idea right here. Instead of just leaving your seat during greet your neighbor and finding somebody you don't know and say hello, find one person and find out something about that person during that time. And we'll even take longer to do it. Just walk up to somebody, you know, walk in mind and go, hi, God bless you, God bless you, hi, God bless you. Praise the Lord, God bless you. You know, that, that didn't, I mean, I walked up to a couple this morning, I said, uh, have I met y'all? And he said, you say that every time. <laughs> I'm ADD, is that a squirrel? Yeah, so, 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 um, <clears throat> So I'm just saying, focus on one person you don't know and learn something about them. Just say, now, have I met you guys? And if they go, yeah, I think we did say hello. Say, well, now, are y'all from around here? Or do, you know, where do you work? Or are you in the Air Force? Or just find out something about them. And then go back to, you know, it's better to meet one person and find out something about them than to shake hands with 15 and not know anyone you knew that's on you before. Thank the Hadleys for that idea. We just thank them right now. That's a great idea right there. <clears throat> so when you accept people, you say to them, you belong here. The second thing that this love looks like, this John 13 love looks like, is this. Forgiveness. It doesn't only look like acceptance. It looks like forgive one another. There are seven categories of love. The first one was acceptance. The second category is forgiveness. How many of y'all know this is a biggie? This is huge. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, and I could have got a lot of verses that said forgive each other, but this is the one I picked. Ephesians 4, 30 through 32, look what it says. Man, this is so powerful language here. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He is the one who has identified you as His own. Jesus said when they see you loving each other, they will know you are mine. Remember, he is the one who has identified you as his own, guaranteeing, I love that word, not hoping, but guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of judgment, the day of redemption. I really was counting on that, weren't y'all? So, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of malicious behavior. Now, it would be great to do a word study on all those words, but I think they speak for themselves pretty well. And if you will notice, there seems to be a progression there. Bitterness becomes rage. Rage and then anger and harsh words and slander. That When I looked at that Greek word, they all actually tie together. Bitterness, rage that um, uh, becomes anger. And that anger can't stay in anymore. You know, there are some people who have anger, they can keep it in. But, but the Bible's teaching us right here that after a while you won't be able to keep it in. And it'll just come sloshing out all over the place. Um, 
what you're filled with is going to slosh over the side when you're shaken. Joy is the flag that is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is on the throne. I just thought of that. I just thought of that right there. <laughs> Joy is the flag that is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is on the throne. When anger is on the throne, that flag will wave. When unforgiveness is in your heart, that flag will eventually wave publicly. He says, instead of all that, let's do this. Be kind to each other. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Well, how, how, what are you talking, when you say forgive, I mean, like, what are you talking about? Well, just as God through Christ has forgiven you, oh, you know, when Jesus talked about forgiveness, isn't that what the disciples said? So what are you talking about, really? I mean, you want us to forgive, like, more than once? Seven times? I mean, I'm so full of God, I think I could do it seven times. Jesus goes, how about seven times 70? Which meant as many times as they ask you. What does it assume when it says we are required as Christians to forgive each other. Now this isn't talking to the people out there, y'all. It's us. So when the Bible says you guys have to forgive each other, what does that assume? That we're going to hurt each other. It assumes we're going to mess up. It assumes we're going to offend each other. See, if I'm never going to mess up and offend you and you're never going to mess up and offend me, we don't even need the word forgiveness. So why does it tell me, Pharaoh, forgive? Why does it tell you, forgive? Because we're going to get hurt in the church. As believers, we don't have any problem understanding we got to forgive the people out there. We know they're going to mess up. But this isn't talking to them. It's talking to us. Forgive one another. Newsflash, members of the body of Christ, people in the church, sometimes do the wrong thing and hurt each other. <clears throat> Let me tell you some things Christians do. I have a whole sheet. I just wrote these things down. I've been doing this thing since I was 17 years old. I could have wrote 10 sheets because I know me. Now you thought I was saying because I know you, because I know me. Here's what Christians will do. They will take things that don't really belong to them. They will go, I'll pay my tithes at this church. If I want 50 paper clips, I will take 50 paper clips. A Christian will lie to protect himself. A Christian will park in a handicapped space and limp in the church. Stop it. We know you're not handicapped. You may pull that off at Walmart, but it ain't working here. Christians will sign up for stuff and not show up. (laughs) 
Christians want others to serve them, but it would come times to ser- sign up to serve. They can't, they just. They act one way to your face and totally different behind your back. Christians will do that. Christians, I've noticed, will judge you with strictness, but when they blow it, they want a lot of mercy and grace. I'm sorry. I know when you did that, I slaughtered you, but could you just give me some space? Christians speak harshly, and you say, well, it's the truth. The Bible says speak the truth in love. Christians express amazement when they hear about the failure of a sinner. When in their private life, while nobody's looking, they're doing the same thing. How many of you all know this is good to do in church? There are some churches, if you preach like this, you'd be looking for a job. But Whitley Church, Farrell Hardison, we want to evaluate ourselves. I'm telling you all something. Let's be the real deal or let's just shut it down. I'm I'm not kidding you. Let's be the real deal. Uh, I I ran into a guy from a church in Goldsboro, and I got to hurry up here. But he said, I heard y'all got one of them uh, disco balls in your church. (laughs) He said, I heard y'all got one of those hanging from the ceiling. You shine a spotlight on it, the lights just go everywhere. And I went, no, but that's a great idea. That's awesome. I had not thought of that. I'm on it. (laughs) Y'all know stuff's being said about us, don't you? They worship in the dark. (laughs) You know why we do that? Because it's nobody's business what you're doing in worship. And you know what? Somebody, if the lights are full-blown, bright... They might not raise their hands, but if you put the lights down a little bit, they might lift their hands. It ain't about you, cuz. It's about what we do to worship him. I mean, we get talked about all the time, man. That's good. They talked about Jesus. I'm telling you, we're going to learn this song. Y'all remember that song, Let's Give Them Something to Talk About? (laughs) So we're going to open up with that one Sunday. And we're also going to learn a song by that great group, the Eagles, called Get Over It. Y'all remember that song? It's a couple we're working on. Stop griping and get over it. Here's some other stuff Christians will do. When they are super talented, sometimes they will get arrogant and dismissive of the untalented, just like super talented people in the world. They talk about unconditional love, but they love to gossip as soon as they hear bad news about somebody. They love to catch others doing wrong, but they refuse to acknowledge the pride and rebellion and sin in their own life. But they love to catch others doing wrong. Oh, I'm getting happy up here. I wish there was ten more. This is the last one. They talk about forgiveness, but they are quick to isolate and shun people who struggle with spiritual strongholds and addictions of various kinds. They have no compassion for those people because they've never struggled with that. Now, they struggle with pride and arrogance, but they don't struggle with addiction, so they look down on people who who are recovering. 
oh my. Oh, what did the line say on uh, Wizard of Oz? I can't remember. But it was something like that. Where's my wife? Look around. Hey, y'all, just really, seriously, 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 do you do? Look around. Look around. I'm, I'm not kidding. Look around. You are sitting around a bunch of people that without any advance notice will offend you and hurt you at any moment. You say, well, I'm going to tell you something. That's why I just love this church. And that is one thing I love about this church. Is I've been coming here for six months and nobody's hurt my feelings. Oh, you ain't been here long enough. Because <laughs> I'm telling you right now, I'm going to get you. And I'm not going to mean to. But I'm not going to show up when you thought I should. And I'm not going to say something up here when you thought I should. And you're going to do something that you think deserves recognition. And I'm going to forget to give it to you. And I'm going to hurt you. And I'm going to offend you. And you're going to offend me. If we're in this church long enough together, we're going to bump into each other. So here's three things you need to do. Three things you need to do as it relates to forgiveness. Number one, stop being surprised. When you get offended, will you stop going, oh, I cannot believe he claims to be a Christian. Stop being surprised. That's what this whole verse is about. Paul is going, get your head out of the sand. Christians are going to hurt and offend you. Sometimes you will be the receiver of hurt. Sometimes you will be the of hurt. But please understand it's going to go both ways. If you're in this church long enough, you're going to get offended. And I'm going to tell you something. If you're going to leave and go somewhere else every time you get offended, man, you need a good car. Because you are going to be traveling a lot of miles because no matter where you go to church, if you stay long enough, somebody's going to nail you to the wall. And some of them aren't going to mean to and some of them are going to mean to. So stop being surprised. Number two, this is another thing you need to do. Stop talking about it when you get offended. I'm so hurt. Don't gossip about it. Don't gossip about it. Go to the pastor. If there's something we need to do to get you with somebody, let's get it worked out. Let's do that. But don't, don't talk and make it public. It just hurts the church. And, and I'm going to tell you, if you tell somebody, hey, you're a Christian and they did it, here's what that person, that thing might be that big, but in their mind they go, and they blow it up this big. And they go somewhere and they're eating in a restaurant and they go, they're having trouble at Whitley. What? I am so glad. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Don't talk about it. Number three, make your lifestyle, and let's make our lifestyle here at Whitley Church one of constant and consistent forgiveness. And let's develop a culture of forgiveness in this church. Now, now let me just close. i got to close because I want you to watch a little video clip. When I say, when I say forgiveness, I don't mean pardon. I can't pardon anybody. I'm not, I'm, there's only one who can pardon your sin, and, and he's up there. But I can forgive you of your offense, and I can forgive you of your sin. But I'm not talking about no church discipline. 
Love is when we bring you in and say, listen, dude, you can't do that right there. We love you, and we're not going to let you, because, man, if we let you get away with that, you're just, you're just going to go way on out there, and we're not going to do that. We care too much about you. And by the way, the reason we're going to rescue you is because I might need to be rescued one day, and I might need you to go out there and get me, and I want to show you how this works. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted to do that one day in your life, Galatians 6 and 1. So, so the deal is that we are called to be lovers in the sense of forgiveness and acceptance because that's what our message is all about. See, you can't talk about a Jesus who forgives. Can I tell you, when people come in, they don't see Jesus, they see you. They don't see Jesus. They see you. They don't know who Jesus is. They're judging God by how you act. They're going, I don't want to know about your God. I want to know what your God's done for you. Because if your God hadn't done anything for you, I'm not interested in meeting your God. So that's why it's so important that we love so that when they meet us, they go, you know what? He's not perfect. But man, that's the attitude I love right there. That's the attitude that's not out here in the world. That's what I've been looking for. So tell me about this God who made you like this. So if we're going to talk about forgiveness, if we're going to tell people Jesus loves you and will forgive you, they want to see you forgive them first. You've got to forgive them. The result of forgiveness is bitterness and rage, and the antidote is tenderheartedness and patience with one another. So what will we do when it happens? How will we react when we're hurt? You mad at somebody in this church? Get it right. If you're mad at somebody in this church, get it right. Now, if you, if you say, well, I've got some situation in my life, I've got some questions, email me those questions about forgiveness. You say, well, I'm in this situation, this situation, what do I do in that? Because it's not complicated. Send me an email and I'll respond to it. Farrell at WhitleyChurch.com. Just send me an email and say, I'm in this situation and I'll, I'll respond to that. I've already had some people do that. So if you're mad at somebody in this church, get it right. Because see, too much is at stake. Too much is at stake. Can I tell you there are things more important than your little disagreement with somebody in this church? One of the things that's at stake is this church. The future of it. And whether or not we can reach the loss. Another thing is, is our potential as a church to reach the loss. Another thing that's at stake is the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. Another thing that's at stake is that there are people out there who are lost who God wants to bring here. You remember those unbelievers and new believers and broken believers? and they, they, God wants to send them here. That's at stake. He may not send them here if we can't get our act together and start loving and forgiving and accepting each other. Your lost friends you're hoping to come here one day and bring here one day. You know, you, you want to be able to bring them here and for them to find love. Hey, listen, our children are at stake and grandchildren. Say this with me. Say this with me. Repeat, repeat after me. I'm going to forgive you no matter how bad you treat me because there's too much at stake not to. Did y'all hear that yourself? Let's say it one more time. I'm going to forgive you no matter how bad you treat me 
because there's too much at stake not to. I care more about lost people coming to Jesus than I do about winning an argument. Watch this video clip very carefully. Well, my, my daughter Rachel was the first one to be shot and killed in the tragedy at Columbine High School, April 20th, 1999. And that morning I had uh, uh, gone to a store and my cell phone rang at about 11.40 and my wife said that there had been a shooting. A neighbor had run across and told her there had been a shooting at the school. And so I rushed, rushed out, got in my car, started across town, got caught up in a massive traffic jam and turned on the radio and was, I wasn't expecting to hear what I heard. I, I was thinking probably a kid took a gun to school and shot at a teacher or someone he was mad at and wasn't even expecting to hear uh, an announcer sobbing saying that 35 or so kids had been shot and that a number of them had been killed. And immediately I was thinking of my daughter Rachel, my son Craig, who were both students there. My brother had two children there as well. And uh, so I, I started hyperventilating. I mean, I, I started praying and crying and, you know, just uh, felt like I was going to have a heart attack when I heard that news and rushed across town. We waited in an elementary school for hours as busloads of young people came from the school and they walked, marched them across the stage and they called out their names. And slowly the crowd dwindled down until there was just a handful of people left. And they told us there was one bus left coming from Columbine. And I remember running outside, uh, balancing on a small fence, looking in the bus windows when it pulled up. And when the final students got off the bus, there were still 13 families that had loved ones that were unaccounted for, a teacher and 12 students. That day uh, was the most horrible day of my life. And I think the hard part was not knowing uh, whether Rachel was dead or alive. We, we had heard from my son, Craig. We had heard from... Uh, Jeff and Sarah, my nephew and niece. But uh, by midnight that night, we, we assumed that Rachel was one of the ones killed. We called every hospital, and our only hope was that she was unconscious and that perhaps she had been shot and wounded and hid in a closet somewhere that no one had looked in. That was our only hope. And at, at noon the next day, we got the official word that she was the first one to be shot and killed at Columbine. And then my son, Craig, had gone through incredible trauma. He was in the library, and his two close friends who were both on the football team, Craig was on the wrestling team, the three of them were sitting at a table talking in the library, and two boys ran into the room with guns and began to kill students all around Craig. Cassie Bernal was killed 10 feet behind my son. Val Shinor, a young girl that was also asked if she believed in God, was shot, I think, eight times and survived. And... Uh, they came to the table where Craig was at and began to taunt one of my son's best friends who was a, a black student with racial slurs. And they shot and killed Isaiah, they shot Matthew Kector, and Craig was literally covered with the blood of his own friends. They turned their guns on him and at that point the sprinkler system went off in the library from smoke in the room and it distracted the boys and they never came back to where Craig was at or I would have lost two children that day. One of the things we discovered after Rachel died, <clears throat> I was in her bedroom with my daughter, Bethany, and we were looking at some of Rachel's things. We were talking about her, and I happened to see two pieces of paper caught on the mattress springs under Rachel's bed, 
and I pulled them out, and it was an essay that she had written for her fifth period class a month before she died, and it was called My Ethics, My Codes of Life. And in that essay, Rachel challenged her reader to start a chain reaction with kindness and compassion, and she repeated that several times. But she defined compassion. She gave Webster's definition of compassion, and then she improved on his. She said, here's my definition. And she listed five things that to her uh, meant compassion. And the first thing she listed was forgiveness. And that really struck our family that Rachel put such a high emphasis on forgiveness. And I remember uh, shortly after the tragedy, we were out at Rachel's car, which became a big memorial. Uh, near next to the school there were several memorial sites that were built and and around her car they 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 put thousands of flowers and books and all these things and i remember maria shriver doing an interview arnold schwarzenegger's uh, wife did an interview with us and she said to me she said uh, how do you feel about the boys who did this and, and their parents and i said well our family talked about all this and we we made a choice to forgive and to move on and celebrate Rachel's life. And I saw her head just jerk back. Later, after the interview, she came up to me and said, someday I'd like to talk to you more about, about that. She said, I couldn't forgive anyone who had done what they did to your daughter. And I've said then and I say now that I would not have pardoned Eric and Dylan, but I forgave them. My daughter would not have wanted Eric and Dylan to ruin our lives uh, because of unforgiveness. In fact, she was the one that told us to forgive. With our family, as we chose to forgive, my, my son Craig, who was in the library, had the hardest struggle with that issue. And uh, he was very angry, and rightly so. I mean, he had every reason to be angry. His sister was killed. He watched his two close friends kill beside him. He, he, uh, he was terrorized. I mean, I can't imagine what Craig went through facing these two boys looking down the barrel of their guns and came as close as anybody I've ever met to dying. And uh, so he struggled and with that issue. And forgiveness is, is something that sometimes we need to, to do over and over again until it takes, you know, and, until the grace of God is firmly there for us to, to let go. And I'm so glad that Craig has. Craig is truly forgiven and moved ahead with his life and chose to celebrate Rachel's life instead of the anger and the bitterness that we see with so many other people. For me personally, there's no way I could have, in my own strength, forgiven Eric and Dylan. I would have been mad at them for the rest of my life. Uh, but I, I didn't feel anger at first. My, my deepest reaction was just incredible sorrow. I just was so devastated by Rachel's death because I have five children and she was we called her a spark plug because she was the, the spark plug of our family. And it was like they, they took the light out of our family. I know that people who are not Christians go through tragedies similar to what I've gone through. And I don't, I don't know how I could have gone through all of this and kept my sanity because we not only lost a daughter, we had a son that we had to deal with for a full year after the tragedy who had nightmares night after night would wake up screaming, would relive the tragedy, would go into fits of rage because of, of his emotions would just get the best of him, struggle to keep, keep his sanity for a year. I can't imagine what it's like to not, to not be a Christian and go through what we went through. I just can't even imagine it.
I was in an interview with a, a national person, a person you see every day on television, I won't name her, but uh, we were doing an interview and, and um, a commercial break came and she leaned over and tapped me on the leg and she said, Mr. Scott, you're a very strong person. And I said, no, I'm not a strong person. I'm a very weak person and I choose that weakness because I've learned a secret that Rachel learned too, that God's grace is there when we choose to be weak. And so, yes, I'm strong, but it's in the strength of His grace, not in my own strength. This is, to me, so important, is you need to acknowledge that you can't forgive within your own strength. That's the first step of forgiveness. And I, I, have, I had to say that, God, I cannot forgive Eric and Dylan. And I confess that weakness, but out of my weakness, your strength is made perfect. And when we choose to be weak, God is strong. Uh, but there's so much that opened up as a result of forgiveness, you know. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to open the altar this morning, and uh, there's going to be some people up here to pray for you. If you do not know forgiveness uh, that comes from God for your sins, we want to lead you to that that the Lord might forgive you of your sins, that you might accept it. He already actually has extended forgiveness. You just have to receive it. We'll help you do that this morning in this altar. If you are here and you are a Christian, but you are struggling with a hurt in your life, you'd like to have somebody pray for you, we're going to have some folks up here to pray for you. We love you. We're so glad you came today. Go out and love people, accept people, forgive people. Amen. God bless you. Amen.